take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone in the back can hear me. We're all good. Everyone can hear me in the back. Give me a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Good. Okay. I don't have a mic today, so I'm going to shout. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to look at verses 13 through 16, in particular verse 13. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount together, um, and so far in our time together, the Beatitudes have been what our focus is. We've focused our time on the Beatitudes, um, in particular verses 2 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And as we move away from the Beatitudes, as we move on in the Sermon on the Mount, something that we want to do is continually think about the Beatitudes, because that's where Jesus starts. That's his introduction. They represent kind of a thesis statement for Jesus' entire sermon. The Beatitudes, by way of review, the Beatitudes are pronouncements of God's favor on a people that results in a particular type of living that looks strange to the world. So when we look at this list and we see verses 3, 4, 5, and, and uh, all the way through 12, we see blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Each of these things is strange to the world. These are a list of characteristics uh, that look strange. The world does not consider these things to be important. So when we look at the Beatitudes, we see a strange list. We see a grouping of things that, that we don't necessarily always want to be a part of. In fact, a lot of times in our own hearts, in our own minds, we want to be something completely different. Right? The world values different things. The world values authority and self-assertion and, and, and self-realization, but none of those are contained in Jesus' list. And so as we move away from this list in be, the, of the Beatitudes early in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we want to do is realize that they need to remain in the back of our minds. We need to keep them right here. One, maybe your Bible this morning too, as you look at this list, as you look at the few verses before our, 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 our passage this morning, Maybe your Bible says, happy are those, instead of blessed. It's the same idea, but this isn't a sentimental sort of happiness. It's a sort of understanding and a personal sense of flourishing that comes as being part of God's kingdom. Part of coming, uh, becoming part of the kingdom of heaven. And so, uh, when we look at this, we see happy are those, or blessed are those, and then these, these lists of things. I love, I love Eugene Peterson. He, he writes this. This is... This is wonderful. I think that this just really brings it down to ground level for us and we start to think about this list. He writes this, The ancients were often afraid to display their happiness for fear the gods would punish them. We moderns are afraid to display unhappiness for our fear our neighbors will disapprove of us. The ancient world never expected to be happy and was sometimes surprised by little episodes of it. The modern world expects to be happy all the time and is full of resentment when it isn't. And when Jesus appears and he says, blessed are you, then Jesus appears and says, blessed are you. He says, happy are you, flourishing are you, those who inhabit the kingdom of heaven. But that quote, right, that's us. That's us. When he says, talks about the moderns, that's who we are. We're a people who are regularly placing our happiness at the top of the scale. At the place in which we want to reside regularly is in a state of happiness. Because we want our neighbors to look at us and say, look at them. He's happy. She's happy. They've got it all together. It's a mark of having it together. And if we're shocked in which way, the way that true happiness comes. 
people in Jesus' day, they would have never thought they could be happy. We're just shocked by the way that it actually comes when we look at a list like the Beatitudes. Right? Ordering our life in this completely different way, as described here, um, we make happiness not the greatest good, but we're understanding that even persecution brings about happiness. Blessed are those, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not having your dream job. It's not having your dream house. It's not having your dream car. It's not focusing on yourself. It's not living like there's no tomorrow. But happiness comes through taking on the character of Christ, through joyful obedience to everything that's commanded in Scripture. Amen. It's a residual effect. It's a residual effect, not a direct one. It's a residual effect, not a direct one. Happiness comes when you live within God's intended parameters, not when you seek to live within your own. And so, I, I shared this quote a few weeks ago. I'm going to actually say this again because I think it's so important. In the fourth beatitude, when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? We thought a lot about the commands of Scripture and the righteousness of God that comes through how we appear uh, before God in doing the things that He commands us. So, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He wrote this in 1953. He writes this. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire. This We always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. This is what the Beatitudes tells us. The Beatitudes tells us that living like Jesus wants us to live, living and exemplifying the character qualities that are demonstrated here, is the way that true blessedness, the way that true happiness comes about, both here in this life and guaranteed in the next. So in keeping the Beatitudes in mind, that will be essential for us as we continue throughout in the next however many verses through the end of chapter 7 in Matthew's Gospel. So let's look at our text this morning and begin to think about how Jesus constructs uh, his argument or his sermon for his people, especially for his disciples. Remember, he's speaking directly to his disciples here. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 5, he says he sits down and begins speaking to his disciples. All right, let's read this together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, in this morning, we want to focus on the salt part of this passage. Just one verse. We're going to take a long time in the Sermon on the Mount because we're just hitting one verse at a time here. One verse. Verse 13. We want to, we want to focus on what Jesus says in verse 13 when he says, You are the salt of the earth. So, we saw in the Beatitudes, right? They all start with the word blessed. And this is how sort of these verses sort of uh, congeal, how they come together and how Jesus wants us to see them, right? So, in the Beatitudes, we see... It's eight pronouncements of blessing that begin with the word blessed. 
And these statements here that Jesus makes in verses 13 and 14, and then through 16, all start with, you are the, right? Just, there's two of them. But they both start with, you are the salt, and you are the light. He wants us to see that these two things are expressing similar ideas to us. What are those ideas? Those are ideas, are identities. He's giving identity to his disciples in this moment. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying, he's giving them an identity. When he says, you are the light of the world, he is giving them an identity. And what is that identity, Jesus? He's going to bring that out. He's going to, he's going to flesh that out for us in, 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 the, in his next few words. Note, too, that these are not, you must be the salt of the earth. You must be the light of the world. But these are, you are the. There's no options here. For those who are in Christ, this is not an option. For those who follow Jesus, those who are disciples of Jesus, this is not an optional thing. He gives these to them directly because they make up their identity as ones who follow Him. So these are expressions of the existence of the believer for the follower of Jesus that should be taken together for sure. Uh, uh, Tillich, Helen Tillich writes this, Salt and light have one thing in common. This is going to be important for us today and next Sunday. Salt and light have one thing in common. They give and expend themselves. They give and expend themselves, and thus are opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religiosity. So that's the first part that we see here in these two or these two ideas, these two identities that Jesus gives, that these are expending identities. And this theme continues for us. It, continues, it was in the part of the Beatitudes for us, and it will continue for us. A setting aside of oneself and one's own interests, and existing for others. Setting aside of one's own interest, existing for others. A dying to self, and a living for and loving of God and neighbor. So, we want to think this morning then about the impact of discipleship. When we look at, when we're following Jesus, what does that mean? How does that look as we go out from here into the world? What does it look like for us to impact the world around us with the good news of the gospel. And with that said, we're going to explore just that salt part today, that verse 13. We're going to participate then at the end of our time together. We're going to go to the Lord's table and eat the Lord's Supper together. And we'll explore light next week. And next week too, we're going to celebrate baptisms. And we're going to go up to the reservoir. We're going to, we're going to have baptisms next week. And both of these ordinances, both of these commands given by Jesus to the church are statements to the world about who we are. They're statements of, to the world about who we are. A couple weeks ago we talked about how the ancient world looked at this practice and they referred to the church as cannibals. Because they didn't understand, they didn't know, and they persecuted the church because they saw this as cannibalism. Even though we're just going and we're participating together symbolically of bread and of grape juice this morning. They saw that the body and the blood of Jesus, when Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body broken on your behalf, and this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They took that to be an expression of cannibalism, so they were persecuted. And so we're making a clear statement to the world this morning by participating in this. And even though they're not there, they're not here, we're, we're together gathering here by part, part, regularly partaking together of that, we're making a clear statement and a definitive statement about who we are. And next week when we go to the reservoir, there's going to be boats zooming up and down. Uh, maybe not, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what that looks like. 
But hope we won't get hit. But there'll be like <laughs> there'll be boats will be in shallow water. Be like, the boats will be going back and forth and we're actually gonna make a public profession before everyone who's at the reservoir. If there are a bunch of people great if not, then that's fine. We're actually gonna make a public the people who are being baptized are gonna make a public profession through their action that Jesus is the Christ, that they are following him into his death. They're being buried into the waters of baptism. They're coming up. They're proclaiming newness of life. They're going to walk in that as Jesus walked, and they're going to experience a new life and a new creation in the next life. And so we're going to do that together, and we're going to announce. So we've been talking about this for several weeks now. We're going to, I want to make sure uh, that you all hear this. We, we want to be present next week. Like, look at your calendar, make sure it's on your calendar. I want to encourage you to be present, to encourage those who are obediently following Jesus in this way. If we too also, if we're going to next week and we're going to go look at and be part of and affirm people as they're being baptized, we want to recall our own story, that we've been crucified with Christ, and it's not us who live anymore. But it's Christ who lives in us. So after worship, again, we're going to head to the reservoir. We're going to do the thing. Please come. If you're headed out of town, come back Saturday night. If you're, if you're, if you're scheduled to work, try and get it off. Come, if you're tempted to sleep in because work, this week is crazy for you, I'll show up at your house with coffee. I will do it. Seriously, come up to me afterwards. I will bring you coffee next week at 8 a.m. if you need it. Don't feel guilty if you can't do it. But find joy in coming. It's an overflow of love for your brothers and sisters who are sitting in this room. It's an overflow of love for them. The death to self in a practical way. It's death. I know it's the middle of the summer. But this is death to self in a practical way. And if there's a situation outside of your control that you can't do it, find the people who are being baptized, get their phone number, call them, and encourage them. Let's not sit on our hands. Let's encourage people practically with the good news of Jesus Christ and affirm them in their acknowledgement of following Him. Okay, so verse 13 then. Verse 13. Uh, three things then I want to point out that we see here operating in verse 13. Three things. First, salt's task. Secondly, salt's taste. And then thirdly, a warning, salt trampled. Salt's Task, salt's taste, and salt trampled. So, salt's task. What do we see here? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is salt's task? Why does Jesus decide to use this metaphor of all things? Why does he choose to use salt as, as a metaphor? That's where we need to begin asking uh, questions. What does Jesus mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Well, lots of people have lots of things to say about this. There's, uh, I found at least 11 different ways that salt was used in the ancient world. And so we're just going to explore three. Think about the direction that Jesus' hearers would have, have gone. Three things. The first is probably less likely, but it's something that connects with us. So we're going to talk about it. The most common way that we think about salt is a condiment, Right? Shake it, on, shake it on your food. Delicious. Brings out flavors. That's what it's meant to be. Please pass the salt. Um, we put it on our food. But 
this is part of, I think, what Jesus wants to communicate to us because he talks about salt's taste, although I think there's some nuance there also, but we'll get to that in a minute. Probably not entirely Jesus' intent. It's probably not exclusively about taste. The second most common way in the ancient world that salt was used is as a preservative. Was as a preservative. We don't see that as much because we have refrigerators and freezers. They didn't have refrigerators. Well, you know that. We don't have, they didn't have refrigerators. So to keep, in particular, to keep their meat from going bad, they would, they would salt it pretty heavily. They would salt it and it would pre prevent decay, it would prevent breakdown. And we, like I said, we just toss our meat in the fridge and we'll eat it soon, throw it in the freezer, it lasts even longer. I saw this episode of Hoarders one time, there was just a lady said she had a ton of meat in her fridge, freezer from like 35 years ago. And, they said that, and it, she said, well, if you put it in the freezer, it never goes back. Not entirely true. <laughs> but, but anyway, it, it preserves it. That's the intent, right? Salt preserves things. Um, again, this, it, it will go. This is what closer, I think, to what Jesus means. I think this is closer to what Jesus means. The third thing that the ancient world would have thought when they heard salt is not something that we would think of, and that's purity. Salt is a pure, uh, a, a metaphor for purification, especially in the, the Old Testament. We see this in several different instances, probably because salt was white, like snow or wool. The, 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 the Bible uses this imagery regularly to display purity. Um, and so, uh, in like, here's a couple of examples. Exodus 30, 35 says that the incense offering is to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. So salt was thought to be something that was pure. Uh, 2 Kings 2.21, Elisha throws salt into a contaminated spring. And the, and the Bible says that this is what the Lord says. I have healed the water. He throws it, he purifies the water. And then Jesus uses the metaphor too. He picks up on it in the Gospel of Mark. He says that everyone will be salted with fire, talking about judgment. This refers to his disciples and the persecution and suffering that they would endure. They're going to be salted with fire. They're going to be purified with fire. They're going, to be, they're going to be built up. They're going to be purified. And they'll be more like Jesus. So, salt's task then, I think the way that Jesus wants to outline this for us, the way that Jesus wants us to think about this passage and this verse in particular, is that it refers to purification and preservation. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Followers are Jesus, of Jesus are to act as a purifying and preserving agent in the world around them. Followers of Jesus are to act as a preserving and a purifying agent in the world around them. How? By proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in word and in action. This is simple. He wants them to purify, he wants them to preserve the world around them by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, both in word and in action. What does that look like? Living lives that are public, that are in line with what is described in the Beatitudes, and verbally proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. You can't do one without the other. There's a verbal element to this, and there is an action-oriented, life-living type of element to this. You don't get one, you don't get, you don't get the other. They come in as a package deal. John Stott writes this, Christian saltiness is Christ's character as depicted in the Beatitudes. 
committed Christ's disciples exemplify in both word and deed? What's going on in the world? So we look at the world then, it's like, so is there breakdown and decay? Why would he use these, this metaphor for us? Because there's breakdown and decay and going on in the world. Why is that happening? In short, because of sin. The world is experiencing this moral decay and corruption and has since Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. And this is the natural order of things. This is the natural order, not the intended order of things, but this is the natural order of things. There is breakdown. There's all that's gone wrong because of sin. Notice, though, that this isn't an appeal to social or political action either. But this is first spiritual. We said that the Beatitudes, when we looked at the Beatitudes, we said these are first spiritual characteristics, and next they work themselves out. This is a spiritual understanding that Jesus is giving his followers. You are the salt of the earth is a largely spiritual, uh, a spiritual identity given to them. It's not a call to social political action, but first spiritual action. We tend to slip into this, we tend to slip into this, as Christians in particular, I think we tend to slip into this, the world is going to hell in a handbasket type mentality. Like look at the world around us, everything's falling apart, woe are we, blah blah blah. But this is not what Jesus says. What he says, if we read the Beatitudes together, if we thought through them, in, in clearly at least, what we see is that we should not be surprised by moral breakdown. Right? We should not be surprised by decay. We should spend time, we should not spend our time being alarmed by the pollution of sin when God's world tells us that this is the God's word tells us this is a natural state of things. We should mourn over our sin, like verse 4 of chapter 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We should mourn over sin and our sin, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. And if you think that the depravity around you is greater than any other time in human history, you should pick up a history book. Like, what's going on in the earth is a consistent, constant breakdown. And the, the question for the disciple, the question for the follower of Jesus then is, what do we do? What do we do then? How then should we live? How should we think? And Jesus tells us in verse 13, Live as the salt of the earth, purifying, preserving, through proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We often want other solutions. We want other solutions. We drift towards that social, we drift towards that political. Christians, for a long time now, have poured tons and tons of resources into swinging elections and such such things like that. And we wind up missing the mark because we're not treating the spiritual problem. We're treating an external one first. It's an attempt to, it's attempt to address the spiritual problem with a temporary external solution. It's a bandage, a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It's a regimen of aspirin when we've already had the heart attack. Jesus isn't talking about social or political action. Jesus is talking about bringing a message of the kingdom to a people who are desperately in need of it. Purification and preservation against moral breakdown and decay are not achieved by demanding moral standards, but rather by the correct acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and that right relationship with God can be had through Him. The, the morality that flows out of that, the correct living that flows out of that, 
will bring about a preserving and purifying element to the world around us. So, salt's task then, to purify and to preserve the world around us. Salt's taste. Salt's taste, right? Jesus talks about its taste, and we might think again that this is an allusion to the condiment. But I think Jesus wants us to go deeper here than just an understanding of what it tastes like on our tongue, or the flavors that it, it accentuates in our food. We've said that Jesus did not think of salt as primarily condiment. Causes, he calls his disciples the salt of the earth. We think about, we think about the, the, the phrase there, but if salt has lost its taste, just that, snip it. We think about this. We start to think about taste as an extension of this metaphor, and it, it's often used as a, it's just, there is a biblical allusion to something else, taste. It's more about perception. It's more about understanding and seeing and beginning to grasp who God is or beginning to grasp what it is that the task that he's called us to is. Think about it. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The idea isn't there that the goodness of God would physically find its way to our tongue or even to the eye. But that goodness of God would be perceived based on God's revelation of himself to his people. That we would perceive, that we would see, that we would know, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would be, that it would be our best thoughts, that our best thoughts would linger on God and his goodness revealed to us in his word. And that we would savor God, that we would enjoy him, that we would taste his goodness, that we would perceive who he is. So when we think of the taste of salt, we're often, what we think about, or the way that our direction of our mind goes, is that something that perceives, somebody who perceives or senses, right? How is the world going to perceive or sense what the follower of Jesus is, or who the follower of Jesus is, and how it is that he or she is following Jesus? Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, It is by seeing the cross in the community beneath it is by seeing the cross in the community beneath that men come to believe God. This is a visible community. That's us, Buffalo City Church. If you've identified with us, that's us. We're a visible community of believers that gather together. It draws people when we come together and we proclaim and we live the way that Jesus tells us to live. And this is a visible community that's marked out by the Spirit of Christ. That's what we have in common. If you are in Christ, our commonality isn't that we like motorcycles, isn't like that we like to fly kites, it isn't like that we like to weave baskets underwater. What we have in common is the Spirit of Christ and our mark, that we're marked by the Spirit of Christ. And so, when we, when Jesus also says the taste of salt. He wants us to recognize that salt, you just put salt on your tongue by itself outside of food, it's not sweet. It's not, something that's, it's not something that's sweet. Jesus opts for something that is not sweet, but it stings. Those who have rejected him, to those who love the things of the world, to those who love sin, it purifies and preserves, but it, it stings. Uh, Tillich again, he writes this. One would, think that, one would think that the disciples' ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. 
They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all-too-easy conception of loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say that. You are the honey of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites. And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been abiding things. Right? This is why Paul tells his Corinthian readers in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, but to us who are being saved, it is the, the power of God. The word of the cross, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness because it shifts the focus off of us and onto something else. This is not a popular message. It's not the word of the cross. Why would I want that, the world says? Why would I want to be marked by what's outlined in the Beatitudes? These things are stupid. How is this even good news? Martin Luther writes this, salting has to bite. Although they, the, the world criticizes his biters, we know that this is how it has to be, and that Christ has commanded the salt to be sharp and continually caustic. If you want to preach the gospel and help people, you must be sharp and rub salt in their wounds, showing the reverse side and denouncing what it is is not right. The real salt is the true expression of Scripture, which denounces the world, the whole world, and lets nothing stand but simple faith in Christ. Since Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it is the Christian who is the salt. Friends, we must be prepared to walk out of here into the world and to be persecuted for proclaiming Christ. It stings to hear you can't deal with your own problems. This is why this message hurts. Because your problems at the very root of who you are as a sinful creature, you can't deal with that problem. We don't like that. We don't like that mentality. We live in a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps world. It stings to hear that you can't save yourself. It stings to hear that you must lose everything for the sake of following Jesus. And Jesus calls us the agent by which the stinging is brought about. Being this agent is uncomfortable. If you're thinking about yourself, if you're thinking about how you can get your best life now, if you're thinking about how you can get through your day with just some peace and quiet, if you're thinking, I'm going to keep this Jesus stuff to myself, so don't make anyone upset that you've fallen to the place that Jesus talks about next. Salt trampled. Salt trampled. And this is a warning. This is a warning to us. This is a shot across the bow for us. Right? But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. As disciples of Jesus, as the salt of the earth, we should not be surprised when the message stings and when people recoil at it. But there is great comfort here. There is, there, is great, there is great comfort here. We tend to take it personally when people reject us as Christians. But Jesus says that we are a source of stinging and not to be surprised. We have a God who knows our concerns and anticipates them perfectly. He knows us. He understands what the things that we're going through on a daily basis. And He understands that we, as a people, He's gone before us in those very things. It is, far, it is far worse to lose the sting 
Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why would Paul even bother saying that? If there wasn't something from a worldly perspective that made the gospel offensive. Why would he even bother saying that? Why would he bring up shame? If it was honey. Of course the gospel is offensive. When, well, I'll give you one reason. And again, we talked about this just a moment ago. Is that you can't save yourself. You can't do it. That's an offensive to the world. We want to dictate our future. We want to command our own destiny. We want to master our futures. We want some amazing self-realization that results in bringing about security and happiness in our future. But none of that is true. None of that is true. The gospel points to our complete dependence on another to bring about what we cannot. The eradication of sin to rebuild relationship with our Creator. So the admonition is, is clear. The admonition is clear. Being Christ-like will be unpopular. It will evoke anger. It will result in persecution. But to be trampled underfoot is far worse. So question for you. Question. Are you distinguishable from the world? This is important. This is what it means to be salt for the earth and not to lose your saltiness. Are you distinguishable? Are you different from the world? Think about the way that you order, the way that you structure your days. Does it matter that you're in Christ? Is there anything different about you? Are you exemplifying the things given in the Beatitudes? Do you go to work so that you can make money and live a particular lifestyle that you want to live? If so, that's something that the world values. You've become indistinguishable from the world. Do you seek dirt on other people to lord it over them and gossip around the water cooler? If so, that's something that the world values. You've become indistinguishable from the world. Do you openly advocate for sin in the lives of others to improve their earthly situation? If so, you've become indistinguishable from the world. We quickly abandon who we are as the salt of the earth by dumbing down and ignoring the truth of who Jesus says that we are. Purifying, preserving agents. We're called to deal with the sin and decay of the world by proclaiming the truth of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus to a world that hates the message. When we abandon this message for the sake of comfort and convenience, we've lost our saltiness. So again, admonition time. Two things. Well, the first thing we talked about a moment ago. As disciples of Jesus, the salt of the earth, we should not be surprised when the message stings and when people recoil at it. But secondly then, in conclusion, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. Be distinct from the world. Consider with me how you spend your time again. Does it look different from your unbelieving co-workers and friends? It should. If it looks like the pursuit of material things, self-interest, accumulation of power, if it looks like anxiety over tomorrow's problems, if it looks like frustrations over the way things should have been in your world, then you become indistinct. Consider that God created you for His glory. Consider the fact that it is His good pleasure that you would be set apart and that you would be distinct from the world, that you would be different from the world. And consider the fact that He did this to display Himself and proclaim the goodness of Himself through us, through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't lose your saltiness. Third thing. 
Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We said this a few weeks ago. Jesus didn't shy away from difficult situations in speech. Jesus did not shy away from difficult situations in speech. And we shouldn't either. We're, we are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. When we see sin and its effects, we make a beeline to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to proclaim who Jesus is and His work on earth and the restoration that comes through Him. It stings, but it purifies and it preserves the world around us. So as we go from here, we're going to go to the table now. As we go to the table, just consider two questions. Well, three questions, really. And Mark even alluded to one of these earlier. As the salt of the earth, what situation or relationship is God calling you to? What situation or relationship do you find yourself in where you need to speak the truth of the gospel clearly, where you're being called to do that, despite the fact that it's going to sting and it's going to hurt and you might lose that relationship or that situation might become incredibly difficult for you? That's the first question. And the second question kind of stems out of that. How can you be an agent of purification or preservation? I would submit to you just to think about that first question more intentionally. Secondly then, are you distinct from the world? Think about your days. Like I said, think about how you order your days, your trajectory, what you do regularly. Think about your work, your play, your interactions with loved ones, your interactions with ones that you don't love. Are you distinct or are you different from the world in those things? So we're going to turn our attention now to, to the table. This is something we do regularly together as believers. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're not part of Buffalo City Church, I'd ask you, go ahead and participate with us. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not sure what that means or what that looks like, just take a moment, think about what's going on, think about what's been said this morning, just refrain. This is something that we do together as followers of Jesus. Um, so what we do, why we do this, is we take the bread, um, we recognize and we understand that Jesus' body was broken on our behalf. That we are sinful people, but Jesus came to earth, lived the life that we could not live. And that he died a death that we deserve. We look at the blood, the, the juice that we're going to drink, and we see that Jesus shed his blood on our behalf so that the sin, our sin might be taken away from us. And then together as we do it, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. This is what we're doing. We're proclaiming Christ's death until He comes. And when He comes, we'll be caught up and we'll understand that all of this thing, all these things, all this suffering, all this persecution, all of these things, all this stinging that comes about but through the truth of the gospel has an end and has an ultimate aim. And that's to be in right relationship with God for all of eternity. So when you're prepared in your heart, come forward, grab the elements. You can head back to your seat, take them there. Or uh, take them, uh, take them at the table. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get it started. Let me pray for us, and we'll and we'll begin.